You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Brock, Communications Director at the National Committee for Quality Assurance, or as you know us, NCQA, and your host for this inaugural edition of our new podcast, Inside Healthcare. We expect to interview movers and shakers in the healthcare space working in all types of ways to improve care. We start with a quality talk speaker and an innovator in measurement. Dr. Martin McCarry is a Johns Hopkins surgical oncologist specializing in minimally invasive pancreas surgery. He's also founding director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Surgical Outcomes Research and Clinical Trials and executive director of Improving Wisely. That's a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation project to lower health care costs by creating measures of appropriateness in healthcare. You can bet you'll hear his passion about all that in our interview. Let's first tell us about uh, who you are. Um, and I, I know you're at Hopkins, but tell our audience who you are, what you do, and what you specialize in. Sure, my name's Marty McCary. I'm a surgeon at Johns Hopkins and a health services researcher. You talk a lot. I, I was reading the transcripts of your, your talk here at NCQA. Give us a, give us a, and you've written a book too, uh, in 2012, that's about five years ago. Is your talk going to be about the same stuff? Um, it'll touch on a couple messages in my book, Unaccountable. But for the most part, my talk is going to be about the newest work that my research team is doing. We're doing some incredible work around data. You know, one of the challenges that people in the space of quality, hospital administration, healthcare organizations, and those who manage doctors frequently have is how do we improve quality? How do we move the ball? How do we get beyond this stale point? where we have complete stagnation around the idea that my patients are sicker, the data is no good, and um, it's not me that's responsible for uh, uh, not advancing quality, it's other people. You know, if you look at, if you look at the work of quality improvement, we've made, we've made tremendous advancements. But we've come to a point now where we're starting to ask, what's the next step? And at times, our recent achievements have become our stumbling blocks because we've almost become um, so celebratory about the advances that we've made. We've lost track of the fact that things that matter to patients are different than what things than things that are important to measurement scientists. We tend to measure in healthcare things that are easy to measure rather than things that are important to patients. When I had a patient ask me once, what should I expect after surgery? I went into this sort of doctor talk of, well, the risk of readmission to the ICU is 2%. The risk of rebleeding is 1% requiring a reoperation. The risk of readmission is 20% after pancreatic surgery. And the patient sort of quickly tuned out and then cut me off and said, look, doc, I don't, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when can I mow the lawn again? Right. 
And so it hit me that what we measure is not necessarily what's patient-centered, it's what's easy to measure. And traditionally, if you look at our measurements, they are things that are easy to capture. Readmissions, all-cause readmissions, that's a code that shows up in the data and you can capture that, it's easy to measure. Patient satisfaction scores, a one to five scale, easy to measure. Now you can have an un unnecessary operation and yet be totally satisfied with it. So are we really measuring the things that I think are on my patients' minds when they are looking for a doctor? And that is, what's the doctor's judgment? What's their skill? What's their humility? In other words, at what point are they ready to say, I don't know, or let's involve another doctor that may have more clinical wisdom on this topic. You know, I had a, uh, uh, trainee that I worked with who beat himself up because one of the stitches he placed in a series of dozens of stitches was initially a little too small of a bite. And he immediately recognized it, backed out the stitch and then placed it perfectly. And he, he just was so frustrated that he didn't get that the first time. And I said, look, don't beat yourself up. You're a great surgeon. You've got the great technical skills. What's going to make you a good doctor is knowing your limits. It's knowing when to call for help. It's knowing when you don't know something. It's that humility that drives a lot of quality. How do we measure humility? How do yeah. we measure appropriateness? We measure right now what happens if you have something done. If you have a knee operation, what happens afterwards? If you have a colon operation, are you one of those 8 to 12% of people that develops a wound infection? But that's really only one small piece of the pie. The real question, and the question I believe patients are interested in is, do I need that knee operation? Is the surgery appropriate? We're now learning from our own research, surveying over 2,000 doctors around the United States that in the voice of doctors, this is them speaking, this is not an analysis, this is doctors speaking, they believe that 15 to 30% of everything we do in healthcare is unnecessary. Now, I don't know if these doctors are correct, but if they are, we have a serious problem. Hmm. How do you measure whether or not something is appropriate? It is a, it's a big question. It turns out that there are ways to do it if you apply more sophisticated analytics. Now, um, moderate quality analyses can be dangerous. There's a big difference between, between doing a moderate job with the data and doing a superb job. As a matter of fact, you can get completely different results. And I believe doctors deserve and patients deserve superb data analytics. That is, they don't want raw mortality rates. They know it's never risk adjusted perfectly. It may be unfair to the doctors being measured who are taking on the complex cases. We may be creating rewards in the system for doctors to discriminate against high risk cases. We've seen this. Mm -hmm. But can we create metrics where there's broad consensus by the doctors? Traditional quality measures live at the patient level. And we fight this war 
every day in American healthcare. In this one patient, you either failed to comply or you complied with some guideline. And the doctors come back and say, you don't understand, this patient was unique or there were different uh, factors involved here. Many times the doctors are right. But what if we left the individual fight over what happened with one patient and we instead look at an entire practice, uh, the pattern by which the doctor practices? Can we look at, for example, a spine surgeon's practice pattern measure of appropriateness that we developed with spine surgeons. Now this is a homegrown quality metric that's doctor developed and doctor endorsed. And what the spine surgeons tell us is a great measure of a spine surgeon's appropriateness is what, what percent of their patients had at least one physical therapy visit in the 12 months preceding that elective spine operation for chronic pain. That's what the doctors believe is a valuable measure. Now it's not at the individual patient level because you know what, there's exceptions and there always will be. Mm -hmm. But what if you look at an entire practice of a spine surgeon? And this is what we're doing with our National Improving Wisely project funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We're looking at practice patterns. And it turns out if you graph a spine surgeon's uh, practice pattern and compare it to every other spine surgeon in the United States, as we've done, what you find is that most doctors do the right thing and always try to. No surprise there. But some fraction of outliers are practicing in a way that spine surgeons believe is indefensible. That is, they practice where it is rare that a patient undergoes at least one physical therapy visit to try non-operative management before undergoing elective procedures. Mm -hmm. Now, can we apply this model to other issues in healthcare? Absolutely. There are over a hundred different practice pattern measures right now, and we're applying them to things like the opioid crisis. The opioid crisis is really, uh, it's got two parts. It's got the source of the problem and it's got treatment. Mm -hmm. And treatment is underfunded. And yes, we need to put more money into treatment. But let's be honest with ourselves. The root cause of the problem is that we doctors and surgeons prescribe the most opioids in narcotic naive patients. We have been prescribing opiates like candy for decades. Why? Because we thought they were non-addictive. We were doing it for good intentions. And in the last year for which we have data, we prescribed one opiate prescription for every American adult. And we do that every year. Mm. Can we look at prescribing patterns? Can we look at C-section, a standardized elective operation? And when it's uncomplicated and the patient doesn't have a chronic pain syndrome and is narcotic naive, the patient should go home with roughly five to 10 opiate tablets if they would like to have opiates. You should never be prescribing more than that in a narcotic naive patient after uncomplicated C-section. And yet the data shows us that people are routinely getting 30 and sometimes 60 tablets. In fact, we learned in our own advocacy work that a lot of the electronic health records out there have 30 tablets as the default prescribing fill rate. 
We Who knew? Data. Who knew? Right. We can use good data to address outlier practice patterns. And that, I think, is the future of quality. So you, it's a little more difficult. How do you get us into that space? How do you get the system into that space along with you of measuring differently? Well, what we're finding is that if in the past, if you've identified outlier practice patterns of overtreatment, they re it really represented, yeah, there was a moral case to address that, but there was no financial case. As a matter of fact, you were financially penalized as an organization for reining in your outlier. That's changing now with new shared risk, with health systems that are integrated. Many large health systems have their own health plan. When they share the risk financially, now there is not only the moral imperative, but there's the financial incentive to look at overtreatment and overuse. Now, there's a, a normal range of variation, and I want to be clear that we should endorse variation, but variation within certain boundaries that the doctors say is reasonable. Beyond that, that variation should not be accepted. We should start by letting the doctors know where they stand relative to everybody else. We should start by letting a pediatric surgeon know that they are doing umbilical hernias way early, isolated umbilical hernia repairs in children way earlier than their peers. You should really be waiting till the kid is five or six years old to mm. give that open umbilical hernia a chance to heal on its own. The vast majority do. That's the standard of care. Mm. If you've got a guy doing one and two year old kids routinely, for umbilical hernia repairs without any other operation, just an isolated procedure, we should start off using civility. We should share the good data with the doctor and let them know you are in the outer one percentile. You are two standard deviations out of the norm. And if we did that, we could probably use civility to address appropriateness in a way that will allow us to help some doctors rather than blame them. Hmm. You know, um, we're seeing tremendous interest nationally for these appropriateness measures. We've got health systems calling me saying, can you run these appropriateness measures in a group practice that we are thinking about acquiring? We wanna know if they are one of the groups out there that overdo it or if they practice sound medicine. We're having integrated health systems say, Tell it, show us where the waste is. We want to focus on the extreme waste where doctors developed appropriateness measures and that practice pattern is indefensible. I, I practice at Johns Hopkins. I take care of very complex pancreatic surgery cases, cases that get turned down at many other institutions. I recognize that we need variation. Variation is good. Variation allows us to innovate but unwarranted clinical variation that is outside the boundaries of what doctors in that specialty consider to be reasonable goes on every day in the United States. We can do something about that. Okay, so let's get to the sort of fun questions. What do you predict, let's go 25 years from now, what do you predict will be the biggest or starkest difference in the healthcare system from the way it is now? Well, I think it's going to be a far more empowered patient 
marketplace. You know, right now, you can walk in to a hospital and the doc who comes to see you could be a doctor that does every single operation laparoscopic, or at least the vast majority of the cases laparoscopically using minimally invasive surgery. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a doctor that likes to do it the old way and they'll tell you, I'm not into all that rigmarole. I do it this way and, and that's how I'd like to do it. Right now, there's very little guidance on quality out there. We talk about value as if we figured out a way to measure quality. The reality is our measures of quality are still relatively immature and they're limited to a very small subset of avoidable harm out there. So I think we're going to start to see more reliable measures. Our own appropriateness measures that we've developed are using claims data. So we have the power of national benchmarking, but we can do better than that. Mm-hmm. We can use clinical data. As a matter of fact, you talk to doctors around the country who have already been doing this. I've spoken with orthopedic surgeons that have incredible data on their groups and they use that data to ensure good, high quality care that's uniform, no matter who you see in that group. You see the power of benchmarking with surgical uh, site infection rates and other practice patterns where we can show doctors, here's where everybody else is and here's where you are on the practice pattern of ordering an MRI for an initial presentation of back pain. So I think we're gonna use data a lot wiser. I think we're gonna see a, a whole new demand for ways to measure not the traditional um, quality measures that we've been using, but appropriateness measures. So that's your prediction. What do you know for sure about the future of healthcare? Well, we know that there are huge stakeholders in medicine, massive, massive, powerful stakeholders in medicine, all of whom do mostly good in the healthcare system, but they also have their uh, horse in the race. And the one person, the one stakeholder that is probably the most underrepresented stakeholder in healthcare today is the patient. The patient um, is the one stakeholder that does not pour tens of millions of dollars into congressional campaign races. They are not at the table when we talk about quality and safety many times. And um, they don't have a roadmap to figure out where good value lives in healthcare. And I think what you're going to see is a tremendous grassroots movement. And I think what's going to be even more impressive about this grassroots movement is that they will be ushered in by American physicians. You are going to see doctors hold to that creed to be a patient advocate and usher in a movement of patients advocating for grassroots change in healthcare. I think we're already seeing it. On that note, you're a glass half full kind of guy. I'm extremely optimistic about the future of healthcare, in part because when the entire system falls apart, there's an opportunity to pick up the pieces 
and rebuild the, new, the system and almost create a new system. Look, for example, at employers tired of the fact that they have to pay into a system where they have no metrics of performance and they don't know what they're getting, even though CEOs will tell you healthcare is the one outsourced thing they pay for where they have no metrics of performance. Mm -hmm. They're tired of that. And they're saying, look, why do we need to have such a thick middle layer between us and the doctor? Can we go directly and do direct employer-based healthcare? Can we get the bills directly and just pay them ourselves? Mm -hmm. We have now almost half of the United States paying for healthcare through employer, half of employers paying for their own healthcare directly. And actually they're using the innovative payers to help them do that um, by employing them to manage, do, manage the bills. This employer-based healthcare movement in America is powerful and it's changing the landscape of medical care. For example, employers have very little tolerance for the fact that they're getting a bill that has a three times markup from what any other insurance company would pay. And so they're basically saying, give us a fair and transparent price. Let us know what the quality is of that service. We want some measures of quality or appropriateness. And we're going to make our own decision which of the two or three health systems in town we're going to send our employers to. You may have heard recently that both Amazon and Walmart have been looking at disrupting healthcare by offering primary care clinics in their uh, in their in their retail stores. Well, if you're going to pick up some milk and you leave grandma at the doctor there at one of these retail stores, and the doctor says this patient needs an operation, can you imagine the tremendous power that these organizations are going to have? They will control the entire referral practice patterns in a region. That is the most valuable pipeline of revenue for a hospital. Now, if they apply the same value metrics that they use for other suppliers, now it's much, much more complicated. But if they can figure that out, if they can use things like the appropriateness project to use appropriateness measures, if they can look at things that are important to their patients, not just things that are easy to measure by healthcare analysts, we could see a major disruption in healthcare. Now, all of these innovations have downsides. I think, unfortunately, right now, as we see a tremendous um, patient movement driven by high deductible insurance, we are seeing a segregation in healthcare, and it's very, very concerning to me. We are creating a two-class system, a two-tiered healthcare system where those that have resources are going to get even better care. They're going to be more empowered and they're going to have more information. And those that don't uh, may get the rest of the care that's out there. And that does concern me. Last question. <laughs> what is your uh, most dangerous idea? Well, I think if we change the way that we measure health care, from a way that's business-centered and simply easy and cheap to measure, which is really what we have now, to a way where we're measuring things that are important to patients. 
we're going to see a tremendous interest in that new form of measurement. And we're already seeing it with the new appropriateness measures. Now, we can keep playing the game where we do a moderate to poor job of risk adjustment. And we listen to hospitals routinely say, we collect all of this data, now what do we do with it? And it frustrates them, trust me, it frustrates them. And they say, well, I guess we'll push it out to the doctors. And the doctors come back with my patients are sicker and we have this massive stall in quality improvement. We can keep doing that, fooling ourselves into thinking we're measuring value when we're really measuring price. Or we can ask the patient, what's important to you when you look for a doctor or seek medical care? I bet you they're gonna tell you what's important is a doctor's judgment, their skill, their experience, and their humility, that is knowing their limits. That's what patients are interested in. Those are things that are measurable. We have now ways to measure teamwork and safety culture that we've developed at Johns Hopkins and are, yeah, it's now popularized in the uh, hospital of sa uh, safety culture surveys that are out there. Uh, we've developed appropriateness measures. We've, we can do better. We have a lot of smart people in healthcare. We can respond to what patients say is important and leave this very stagnant area of measuring simply what's cheap to measure. You know, doctors are, uh, we, we're a unique group. <laughs> doctors are right in being jaded about the ways that we've been measured. Historically, they've been very crude and they've actually been counterproductive sometimes. But it, if we actually listen to doctors and ask them, tell us about a practice pattern that's inappropriate. Tell us about something happening in your field and tell us how to measure it. There is great wisdom that lives on the front lines of American medicine. We just need to tap that wisdom. Well, thank you very much, Marty Macari. Uh, we look forward to seeing you speak at Quality Talks 2017. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Matt. Our thanks to Dr. Macari. Now, before we go, a heads up. You have probably heard of the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act, or MACRA, but you may still have some questions about how it will affect you. MACRA effectively ties payments to the quality of care a practice delivers rather than to the number of services it provides. In this new payment structure, bonuses and penalties are based on certain aspects of care delivery, quality, cost, improvement activities, and advancing care information. So to help you, NCQA developed the MACRA Toolkit. The Toolkit details the MACRA requirements, explains how the payment structure will affect your practice, and suggest ways to incorporate the patient-centered medical home model to improve your MACRA scores. Best of all, it's all free. You can find it at macratoolkit.com. Thanks for listening to this first edition of Inside Healthcare. Until next time, I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt.